John chapter 8, chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 53 of chapter 7 says, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So he's overlooking the temple. Now early in the morning he came into the temple, and he sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. Here's a little tidbit that's strange. In the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded such should be stoned. What do you say? And uh, John says this a lot in the gospel. Uh, I'm sure he didn't think it then, but he's had 60 years to reflect on it. He said, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, to the youngest. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn, condemn you. Go and sin no more, or literally go and live a life free of sin. For the first time, live the life that you were meant to live. And then no one reads the next verse. One of the great things about the Bible is always read the verse after the verses you know. Then Jesus spoke to them. He went back to his Bible study and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Uh, we call this story the woman caught in adultery. Uh, I think we should change it to the men, plural, who were caught in adultery. Because Jesus said, you've heard it said of all, thou shalt not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So I'm going to tell you this morning, this is my favorite encounter by Jesus and John. And I know what you're thinking. Pastor Bob, I hear this all the time. Every, every, every book you teach is your favorite book. Every chapter is your favorite chapter. So, yeah, this is your favorite encounter. Yeah, we're going to hear that every week. No, this really is my favorite encounter for at least today, right? This is my favorite one. Um, I'll take it one step further. I think it's the greatest story of forgiveness in all literature. I, I think nothing comes close to it. There's so much going on here at so many levels. And think about its context. Some of you have heard this a hundred times. Some of you have heard hundreds of sermons on this. Can you imagine reading it for the first time? And think about our context and the world we live in. You know, we live in a free and democratic society, maybe the freest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. We've been through civil rights, and, and we've been through women's rights and the Me Too movement. We, we stand at a, an egalitarian place, and it still moves us. It is still an engaging story at every level. Just imagine the context that it happened in. One of the questions everybody has to answer when it comes to faith is how was it that a cult, early Christianity, inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal, that was Jesus, in a long-vanished empire, 
came to exercise such transformative and enduring influence in the world? How did these stories change the world? How, how did this become the pillar that modern Western society is built on? I'm reading a book that I thoroughly enjoy right now called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution uh, Remade Our World. It's a secular book. Uh, the author is Tom Holland. He's one of the great historians of antiquity, lives in London, writes for the London Times, Wall Street Journal, New York's New York Times. Uh, I bought it with the idea that I, I like to see what secular people are thinking. And he doesn't show his cards. I'm not sure he's a man of faith. But what drew me in was in the inside jacket of the book. It says, today, the West is utterly saturated by Christian assumptions. Close up, the division between a skeptic and a believer may seem unbridgeable. Widen the focus, though, in Christianity's enduring impact can be seen in the emergence of much that has been cast as its nemesis, science, secularism, even atheism. Christianity is the principal reason why, this is what Tom Holland believes, that today we think it's nobler to suffer than inflict suffering. Why we assume every human life to be of equal value. From Babylon to the Beatles, Moses to Me Too, Dominion tells the story of Christianity transformed the world and this is one of the stories that led to that transformation. Now, I want to get into John because uh, it's such an amazing story. And you think about what Tom Holland said. What, what I find fascinating about today is that when you look at polls, and, and the polls are accurate, I, I think they are, they tell us that the fastest growing segment in our society when it comes to faith are nuns. Now, not the nuns that whacked me and pulled my sideburns. Uh, not the black cape nuns, uh, nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They have no religious affiliation, right? So, um, and by the way, I'm glad there's nuns, right? Because the, the playing field's level. We don't have to undo anything anymore. We can tell people stories they've never heard before. But when you talk to people in this category, they say when it comes to Christianity, and, and I don't think they know a lot about it, they say what, what turns us away from it is how repressive you are towards gender and sexuality. To which I always answer, we have the greatest story ever told, but we've got a bad PR department. Uh, we really do, we need a new advertising agency. Because we have this great message and our leader, Jesus, was the greatest liberator of women and sexuality that ever lived. Google top 10 leaders, right? Jesus will always be number one, maybe he's number two, he's in the top 10. Show me one greater leader when it comes to sexuality. You know, this woman caught in adultery. The Samaritan women, which had like an ethnic side to it also. Uh, Mary Magdalene, the, the woman at the tomb. Nobody would write a story where women were the first to see the resurrection. And then the movement he birthed, Paul writes the most egalitarian statement ever written in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female you're all one in Christ. 2,000 years ago. We're still striving for a society like this. Wives, love your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Submit to one another. I mean, this stuff in its context was radical. So I'm going to take you through John, and then we'll tie it all up at the end. These religious leaders come to Jesus. Now, the Romans, when they conquered Jerusalem, they knew something about the Jews. First of all, they knew the Jews were strange. Uh, they had a lazy day called the Sabbath, one day of rest. They didn't eat pork. Uh, they got circumcised. This is all weird to the rest of the world, right? 
Uh, they had a law, right? Romans had the law, Jews had a law. And one of their laws was, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, I would think most of us know what adultery is. The Jews actually debated what constituted adultery. It seems like pretty knowable to me, right? Someone once told me, if you put three Jews in a room, you'll come out with four political parties. Okay, so they debated everything. What made it fascinating is adultery was a capital crime. And you think, oh my gosh, how could that be a capital crime? Now, number one, we have no history in the Bible or extra-biblical literature of anyone ever being executed for adultery. But it was a capital crime. Go back and read adultery. I think I know why. God is building a civil society. And, and, all, and all the commandments are basically you shouldn't take away or steal, right? When you lie, you're stealing truth. You know, when you covet, you're stealing other people's property and things. When, when you commit adultery, you're stealing a spouse. You're stealing a wife, a husband, a parent. It was the ruination of the family, and God built society on the family. So these religious leaders come to Jesus, and you have to understand the context. You know, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Jews from all around the world are there. And Jesus, at the end of the feast, stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And he teaches with great authority. So it's the next day, and I think he's got a large gathering. And he's teaching them, and right in the middle, they interject and plop down a woman caught in adultery. Now, I've been in this position, not a woman caught in adultery. But anybody ever lead a Bible study in a home or somewhere else? I mean, gosh, I've been through this. I could tell stories for the rest of the day. Uh, I had a Bible study in South Philly where a woman, the home we were in, had seven cats. And she never locked them up for the study. I'm making like this great point, and cats are climbing everywhere, all over the place. This is, no, this is a true story. I had another Bible study where somebody had a dog, and I'm praying at the end, and the dog's licking me in the face. And these are just stories. There, there was a guy, I just remember this. There was a guy, late 80s, 90s, um, I can't even believe, I, we didn't even have computers. This guy had a laptop. And we had a Bible study in South Philly, filled in the living room, going up the stairs, this guy would sit in front of me, and I'm in my 20s, I'm insecure, I barely know the Bible, and he sat there with a laptop. And I thought it was like a heresy detector. Like if I made a mistake, he was gonna fact check everything. I don't even think there was the internet yet. And then these aren't even church stories, things that have happened. But anyway, Jesus gets interrupted a lot, right? The paralytics drop down in the middle of the Bible study. So they come in with this woman and you have to use your imagination. Have you ever seen somebody caught in adultery, the very act? Don't think about it. You know, was she bruised, beaten, dress ripped, mangled hair, mascara, lipstick? I mean, what did this look like? And when you look at it, everything about it's wrong. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, the very act, and here's what the law says. Like, they're going to tell Jesus what the law says. He wrote the law. They're trying to tell him what the law says. John adds verse 6, like, they had a weird motive, right? Here's what we know. She's guilty as charged. I don't think anybody would deny this woman is guilty of the sin. But what is equally true is her fate is in the hands of powerful men. And that's been the history of women since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve sinned. This is why when you put the story in the context, it's mind-boggling. Because women haven't been repressed for the history of the world. Why? Because men have 30% more body mass. 
therefore they're more powerful. And structures that existed relegated this woman to a sinner, to a lawbreaker, to an argument, to a pawn. Religion saw her as a means to an end. And here's why we're studying John. And here's why we're studying these encounters. How did God see her? How does God see us? A lot of people think God's mad at them. You invite somebody to the church, they're like, oh, I can't come to your church. If I come to your church, the chandelier is going to fall in. When I golf with people that I don't know and they find out I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, I'm sorry for cursing, sorry for doing this. Listen, people know they're sinners. They know. That's why they don't want to come. They know they're sinners. She knows she's a sinner. This isn't the first time. And again, we have a bad PR department. The rank-and-file sinner thinks God is extremely mad at them. And then they also think they have to clean themselves up before they come to God. But the beautiful thing about John is this is God in the flesh. How would God see this woman? Would he see her differently than religion and all of history has seen her? Now, the dilemma here is pretty simple for Jesus. Their motive is to catch him. So they say the law says to stone her. Now, they already know Jesus' background, right? They've never seen anything like this. Friend of sinners and tax collectors, he's got a very weird entourage, right? His followers, his disciples, have no higher education. In fact, they're fishermen, they're blue-collar guys. He's got women, which is strange. You know, one of them had seven demons cast out of her. Love to hear that story someday. Mary Magdalene's there. I mean, this is a strange group. And so they're trying to say, is Jesus liberal is he going to side with Rome? And religion always moves to politics, right? If he says she's not guilty, if he exonerates her, then he breaks the law of Moses and he can't be from God. If he sides with the idea that she should be stoned, then he's got a problem with Rome because Rome took away the Jews' right to execute the death penalty. And here's another interesting thing. Rome comes to, they, they sacked Jerusalem in 63 B.C., in 70 AD, uh, they destroyed the city. So for about 100 years was the window for crucifixion. Galatians says Jesus came in the fullness of time. Only in that 100-year window could Jesus have ever been crucified and the cross become the greatest symbol of any religion and maybe the most iconic symbol of all time. So, so here's the dilemma. Is Jesus going to side with Rome? Is he going to side with the Jews? Is he going to exonerate this woman? And Jesus does something I don't think he gets enough credit for. He answers the question. He solves the dilemma. He exonerates the woman. And he empties the room without saying a word. It's almost like he says, I know what the law says, but I'm not getting into a debate. I know that's what you want. And look, I'm a sucker for debates, right? I love debates. I've gone to debates all my life. I love oratory. I love Logic, I love debates, but, but I, here's what I've learned. When you go to a debate, like a Christian versus an atheist, all the Christians sit here, all the atheists sit here, you go through the, all, all the arguments, and everybody leaves what they thought when they walked in. Now, God works through it sometimes, right? People move along or change opinions, but no debate. Jesus stoops down, position of humility, and he writes on the ground. Now, we know what happened so the question is, what could he possibly have written that would have had this effect? Now, there's only several people that know what he wrote. John knows. 
won't tell us. Jesus knows he won't tell us. The woman knows she doesn't tell. And all the people that left know, and they don't tell. The Holy Spirit does not want us to know what was written. Man, I want to know. <laughs> That's all I want to know. Like, what in the world did he write? There's only three times we see the finger of God in Scripture. When Moses received the law, it said it was written by the finger of God. So only Moses saw that. Daniel, right, the handwriting on the wall when Belshazzar's feast, that judgment was coming on the Babylonians. And now Jesus writing on the ground. Some think he, he was writing the names of the men. Some people think he was writing the law. Some people think he was writing Scripture. There's so much conjecture on what Jesus was writing. In so many ways, Jesus says, look, I'm not going to get in a debate. The law is correct. I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. The woman is guilty. The law firmly establishes that. What Jesus is more interested in is who will be the executioners. Who has the right to take her life? Who has the right to judge? Who has the right to stone her? This is what Jesus is concerned about. And he says to them, and it's the only thing he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, if you know a greater sentence ever spoken, I'll give you my phone number and you can text me. And I'm pretty sure if you find one, it's going to be something else Jesus said. It's seeped into our culture. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, let's put this in context and let's not misunderstand uh, this can become the backslider's favorite verse, right? Uh, and if you're a backslider and you're honest, I hope this is your verse, right? But, uh, you know, I've had so many people say to me, right? Uh, Yo, bro, don't judge me. He was without sin, cast the first stone. I actually had people that committed adultery say this to me. And it's to take it out of context, right? This isn't a license to sin. He's going to tell the women, go and sin no more. Romans is going to say, because grace has abounded, should we... Should we sin more? And Paul says, no, no. Grace is abounded that we would live a life free of sin. This doesn't negate church discipline um, or times where we need to confront people. The whole New Testament talks about that. Nathan confronted David. Ananias and Sapphira died. Uh, I think scripture points to times of correction. Look, at a high level, what Jesus is saying is when it comes to to forgiveness, eternal forgiveness, that sinlessness is the only qualification for punishing. If you want to execute someone, if you want to, if you want to impede final judgment, it's going to take a sinless person. And what's cool is with one sentence, he put a lot of people out of the stone throwing business that day. They all left from the greatest to the least. Now, most people don't see this, verse 8. He stoops down a second time. Boy, I want to know what that is. I mean, the first time was amazing. The second time gets them. Now, did, they, did the men see it? Was it for her eyes only? I have no idea. But it says they left from the eldest to the youngest. See, she was caught in adultery. How many of them committed adultery and were never caught? That's, that's really the question. We live in a strange time, I think most of you know. 
We live in the most tolerant society that ever lived. But if you get one thing wrong, we'll crucify you, right? Do you ever notice that? Like high-ranking officials, church leaders and all. Uh, tolerance, but you do one thing wrong, we'll drive you out, man. Very hypocritical society. So the whole idea today is just don't get caught, right? And by the way, the men know they're sinners. Uh, don't think for a minute these guys thought they were sinless. I mean, look, there's a sacrificial system. There's smoke going up in the morning. There's smoke going up at night. Everybody knows they're a rule breaker. See, here's the question, but what was their method of justification? See, they all knew they were sinners, but they all had reasons for justification. They were moral. They were upstanding. They kept the law of Moses. They looked down at people like this woman who was caught in adultery in the very act. Campbell Morgan said, this picture is one of incarnate purity standing confronting the saddest thing in human life, convicted impurity. The presence of God. See, we can get away with things, with human beings, right? We can get away with a lot. Keep skeletons in the closet. We can hide things. We're really good at hiding. But there's something about coming out in the presence of God. Light exposes everything. Campbell Morgan said, this is incarnate purity in front of convicted impurity. Even somebody like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Peter, when Jesus said, throw the net on the other side, and he hauled in the fish, he goes, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You know, I, I, I can't be in your presence. And so what Jesus establishes here is that the executioner has to be sinless. And so he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are the executioners? Where are those who condemn you? She says, Lord, there are none. And the only sinless one with the qualifications said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, this has happened before, right? In the garden. In the garden, God put a man and a woman, said you could eat of all the trees, all the abundance, but there's just one law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat of it, and you're, does everybody remember the penalty? In the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. God will be the executioner. God was the executioner in Noah's flood. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the commandment, that was the penalty. Except they didn't die. Except God made skins for them because they were naked. God provided a sacrifice, which eventually would be himself. And they experienced something we've all experienced, grace, for the first time. And there's that great prophecy of a redeemer that would come, and it runs through Isaiah, and it runs all the way through the birth of Christ. Neither do I condemn you. Go and live a life free of sin. Now, in our new PR department, we need to get that word out. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How many people know that that's what God would say about them? How many people know, and I don't know where everybody is, that that's what God would say to them in all of their sin? Neither do I condemn you. We love John 3.16 God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then some of us know how deep that theology is, that Jesus had to come and die, etc. 
But again, you'll really do yourself a favor if you read one more verse of the scriptures you know. Because John 3, 17 says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That's the word we have to get out. That's the good news. That God is not here to condemn you. He's here to open the kingdom of the heavens to you. See, the rabbis, and, and it's come all the way through our generation. It works this way in fundamentalism, legalism, whatever you want to call it, where, where we have gospels of sin management. How are we going to manage this thing called sin? How are we going to clean ourselves up? You know, the version we have is give your life to Christ. Or legalism, I always say, uh, the one thing they're trying to do, they can't do, and that's make people holy through all their rules, right? But everybody has a gospel of sin management. Jesus' goal was to open the kingdom of God to people. Imagine this woman seeing the kingdom for the first time. Remember what it was like for you to see the kingdom in all its fullness for the first time? Go and live a life free of sin. Go and live the life you were always meant to live. How does God see people? How he saw this woman. He saw a little girl, someone's daughter, Someone who was born in an unfortunate time, not the time you and I were born. She was born today with the right parents. Maybe she goes to private school. Maybe she goes to Harvard. Maybe she's a lawyer today. Born in the wrong time, a pawn of religion, Jesus sees a human being. Somebody with dreams and talents and ambition. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're confused about sin, for sure. So I'm going to date myself on my birthday. When I was a kid, Barbara Streisand was actually a movie star. And uh, she had this movie called The Prince of Tides, where she commits adultery with Nick Nolte. And she says, if adultery is so wrong, why does it feel so good? To which Nick Nolte said, that's why they made it a sin. Now, do you understand how backwards that is? If adultery feels so good, why is it so wrong? Because that's why they made it a sin. And in the job I've had, I've sat across the table of a lot of people whose spouse has committed adultery. And let me tell you something, it's no fun. It's fun for a season, that's what the Bible says about sin. But sin always brings death. Uh, I was sharing last night with some people that I know that you know, marriage is unique to the Bible, and marriage is the only system where everybody wins. Not where everybody gets their own way, but where everybody wins. Adultery is the system where everybody loses. Everybody gets their way, and everybody loses. Kids lose, spouses lose, society loses. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's really, really bad. And God has always wanted us to walk in the fullness of what he has for us. Uh, somebody asked me a question the other day that I don't think any of you would ever ask me because it sounds so elementary. Uh, but I know one thing about elementary questions, everybody thinks them. So a guy comes up to me and says, Pastor Bob, I thought about this since I was in grade school. Instead of Jesus dying on the cross, why couldn't he like come down through the clouds and said, hey, you're all forgiven? Anybody ever think that? Yeah, you all have, right? So. So why did that not happen? Now, I'm not going to go into the theology of all of it, and this is a feeble attempt 
to unpack something really heavy. Again, I don't think we understand sin. So watch this. Adam and Eve, the first sin in the Bible is eating forbidden fruit. It looks like a white lie or something, right? It's not that big of a deal. You know what the second sin is? Murder. Like we jump from, like don't eat the fruit to murder. And then the history of the world is war and murder until we get to Stalin who killed 20 million people and a holocaust and, you know, if God didn't intervene, we'd probably destroy the world. James said that's the problem with sin. It grows. It starts out small and then it brings death. It's like leprosy. You have this little white spot and then at the end, limbs are falling off. See? But our problem is we think we can play with sin. We can skirt it. We can get around it. And God created us in a certain way and he created life in a certain way that sin would have to be atoned for. And so I told this person, I said, imagine if somebody walked into your home, killed your entire family. Could you just then look at them and say, you're all forgiven? Probably not. This story would transform the world only because Jesus would rise from the dead. These stories didn't change the world. His resurrection changed the world. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he would be Mamendes. Mamendes was a religious philosopher in Israel. If you go around Nazareth, there's a little museum for him. That's, most of you don't even know Mamendes. So that, you wouldn't even know Jesus. Resurrection. Resurrection brought his teachings forward so that we now stand on these principles of forgiveness and a second chance and God's grace. So I want to close with an illustration, and this is the only thing you'll remember, and this is good if you remember it. Picture there's a car accident on I-95, like a real gruesome one, right? And everybody's rubbernecking and looking, and it's one of those ones where you look at it and it's gnarly, there's twisted metal, broken glass, you could smell fumes, really gruesome, mangled bodies. And the first people to arrive are the police. They secure the area, they look for eyewitnesses. The police have one job and one job only, and that's to find out who was at fault in the accident. The second people to arrive are the paramedics. Paramedics don't care if anyone was at fault, they don't care if somebody was drinking or not drinking. They have one job, and that's to fix mangled bodies. So you know what God was kind of speaking to me through this text? As we go forward as a people, as a church, as a PR department for Christianity, we're going to have to make a decision. In our broken world, are we going to be policemen or are we going to be paramedics? Because I don't think anybody in the news understands or shares that message. I, I don't know how we're perceived, but, but are we policemen or are we paramedics? I led a girl to Christ when I worked in the marketplace. And she told me she was going to go to a Bible study, and I know who led the Bible study. I'm like, um, can I give you a couple other suggestions? And uh, she went to that Bible study, and I said, how's that study going? She said, they're like the God police. My heart was broken. And people already know they have problems. They already thirst. They just have never been brought to water. 
What's our church going to be like? Are we going to be about law or about grace? What's our parenting going to be like? Is your house going to be a rescue station, a filling station, a hospital, or a police station? What's your marriage going to be like? What's our school going to be like? Now, listen, as we're going through this, I am a very black and white person. I'm also a man, right? So most dads are like this. Something goes wrong, the dad comes in, and the dad usually is the policeman, right? Kid gets in an accident, the first thing you want to know, do you have your seatbelt on? Were you going too fast? Like, I get all that, right? But I read this and I think, God, I want to get out of the stone-throwing business. I really do. Oh, my gosh, I look on the Internet, and I'm not in social media, and and I read some reviews that people write, and it's, like, scary. But, but the church is throwing electronic stones at one another in front of everybody. And I've always said a coward sits behind a computer. A coward sits behind a computer. Because you'll say things you'd never say to somebody's face. So are we going to be policemen? Or are we going to be paramedics? Are we going to be the PR department we were meant to be? Because, you see, I think John, out of everybody, remembered this. And he said, gosh, if there's one story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke left out, let me give it to you. This woman exonerated in a society dominated by men. Jesus saw a human being and said, go and sin no more. That is the life that he offers. He offers. 